Thank you, Richard. I think we got a picture of him in his uh, in his normal working attire, <laughs> with his lovely young assistant alongside him. <laughs> um, uh, John, um, just tell us quickly what, what's the day job? Day job is sitting in Isleworth Crown Court as a judge. I've been there for about six years. Before that, about 35 years as a criminal and civil lawyer. Um, So that's the background. Excellent. And uh, we um, had a conversation after Easter Day last year, and um, we were talking about whether there was enough proof for the resurrection of Jesus. And and I was wondering whether the evidence for Jesus' resurrection would stand up in Isleworth uh, Court. Um, And so uh, over this last year, John's had the task of investigating from a sort of a judicial point of view, whether there is enough evidence for the resurrection. Um, so, John, if we were to um, you know, try and work out what proof is in, in, in your court, what, what would make for proof? What, what are we looking for? The first thing, can, can we engage the congregation? Well, absolutely. Are we going to make them into the jury or something? Why not? Uh, brilliant. Well, I think I'd strike that one. And uh, Can I strike? <laughs> there they are. You're, you're all included. <laughs> I think if I was addressing a jury and telling them or instructing them how to approach evidence, which is the same discipline that I've applied in the forensic analysis that Richard's asked me to deal with. Um, The important thing is to avoid stereotypes, to avoid coming to the evidence with a fixed idea, with a theory that you fit the facts to. That's dangerous and it's likely to lead to stress and falsehood. Keep an open mind, and that's essential for a jury, and approach the analysis of the evidence coolly and dispassionately, um, ignoring any comments of the judge, which might seem to be pushing you in one direction, or indeed, perhaps not ignoring, but paying due respect to those, <laughs> those of Richard. But to, to answer your question, the jury's got to decide whether they accept the proposition at the end of the trial, at the end of this sermon. And, and it, there's and, this thing called burn of proof, isn't and it? To, what, what and to mean? do so, you have to decide how you are going to reach that decision. The burden of proof lies on the person who is trying to put forward an assertion. The standard, if it's a civil case would be on a balance of probabilities. If it's a criminal case, much higher. It has to be, you have to be sure, or the old-fashioned old expression, beyond reasonable doubt. Mm. The standard varies, therefore, on the gravity of the matter which is being considered. Here, we're considering the supernatural. My goodness, the standard has to be high. It's a very high barrier before you could be satisfied that what is contained in those four Gospels is correct. It's a high standard for something supernatural, and we have um, some evidence that we're going to look at, um, in particular from uh, characters called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I think we've got a photo of them we can just uh, flick on. Uh, We we took this photo uh, a couple of millennia ago. Um, uh, There's Matthew... Mark, Luke, and John, for you exact representations, I'm sure. Um, so, so, John, we, we, we come to the jury then, and they were to consider the evidence from, from these witnesses and others that we'll present later. Um, what, what do they need to do when they're weighing the evidence? What does the jury need to do? First, you've got to remember, you're looking down through the mis- misty 
period of history. 2,000 years has passed by. And therefore, you've got to look very carefully mm. at the particular evidence to see whether it's mutually supporting. Mm. The evidence we're looking at, we're looking at circumstantial evidence, the evidence of what was actually happening at the time, what were people reporting, like the tearing of the curtain, mm. of the... Uh, the the temple curtain? The temple curtain. Top to bottom, yeah. Hearsay evidence, that is what the people who were writing the Gospels gleaned from other people, even contemporary hearsay evidence, and direct eye evidence, eyewitness evidence as well. Um, there's an enormous amount of evidence in those four Gospels, which is what I certainly concentrated mm. on. And one, one thing I found really helpful, John, when we were talking, was that you were talking about what we've sort of called laminate theory, which was a, sort of a layering of, of evidence. That, that's how, an image which I use with my juries. Okay, how, how um, does that work then? Well, circumstantial evidence mm. can be very convincing evidence, very powerful evidence, where you get four or five pieces of evidence which interlink. What the image that I use for jurors is, imagine a piece of plywood. You have one thin piece of wood to start with. That's easily bent, easily broken. But apply another piece of wood of the same thickness and glue it to it. Then apply a third and a fourth piece. By the end of that exercise, you have something which is very robust and strong. The only caution is that you mustn't force the evidence to fit a particular pattern. Um, but with, if you get that lamination of evidence, it can be very convincing indeed. And I, I find that here. Mm. when I'm going through the Gospels. So, if, I mean, if it's a bad jigsaw piece, we can't squeeze it into the puzzle. If you do that, you start again you at start, the beginning. You have to start again, you've got it wrong. But if we can find um, bits of evidence that on their own might not carry the whole weight, but together seem conclusive, that's, that's the laminate theory. So let's have a, a quick look then at some of the flashes of detail that we get in the, in the Gospels. And, and uh, our jury may be familiar with them already, um, but uh, we've been chatting about the, uh, the, the Marys and how the accounts aren't necessarily identical between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And to, to, to a lay person, John, um, the fact that some of the gospel writers seem to say slightly different things um, might be sort of, you might sort of be suspicious of that. You might think, well, you know, they're making it up. How come the details don't exactly match? But two, two points. First, they, they are not identical accounts, so they're not parroting from the same hymn sheet. Mm. That's significant. But also, some of the detail is so exquisite. The description, for example, of the angel when Mary first comes, slightly different in the Gospels, but this amazing character, mm. young man dressed in lightning, mm. or looking like lightning, mm. um, sitting on the stone of the tomb. And then there's another account where there are two angels, identical clothing, like, looking like lightning, an extraordinary description where they're sitting on either end of the tomb itself, mm. moving within the tomb. I, I find it convincing. I don't find the fact that there are slightly different accounts uh, in, in any way undermines mm. the basic theory. Mm. And there's lots of those sort of details, aren't there? There's the centurion running away, Jesus' garment, which fulfills prophecy by not being stripped. 
Uh, there's the darkness covering the land, and that was for three hours in the middle of the day from 12 till 3. Um, and people remember that. That's not, that's not a freak thing. That would be something people would remember. And the temple curtain obviously would have been an utter scandal that was broken. And his side was pierced, no brains were broken. When um, apologists look at the evidence for the resurrection, they normally come to four different things, John. Uh, um, and, and maybe we could go through these. The, the first is Jesus' death and burial. Um, uh, can we show that he actually died? Can we show that he was buried? Um, the second, the discovery of the tomb. Uh, then the post-mortem appearances. He's appeared to 500 people at one time, according to one account. Well, let, let's deal with the first point, yeah. whether he actually died. Um, in, I think it's Luke's Gospel. There is the account of the centurion told to take the body down, but to ensure that the body that he's taking down is dead, he uses a spear to strike the chest. And from the chest comes water and blood, which is what one would expect physiologically if somebody was dead. Mm. But there's also evidence, which I think is quite convincing, when Joseph of Arimathea goes with the witness. And and John identifies the witness. This, This man, Nicodemus, as if, you know, I know that man, Nicodemus, so do you. Go to him for testimony. Mm. And what does he do? He goes to the tomb. He prepares the body. He anoints the body with, uh, med- with um, perfumes and with herbs and spices and wraps the body in linen. You don't do that if the body is still living. No, you'd wriggle out the way, wouldn't you? It's, con- it's, <laughs> it's convincing. And both these characters, evidence. Joseph and Nicodemus, are actually members of the ruling council that sentenced Jesus to death. So... Something quite extraordinary must have happened at his crucifixion to have these two people who would have been there when lots were cast to kill him to actually be the ones tending to his, uh, to his body. So his death and burial, there's other evidence of his death, of course. We'll, we'll come on that when we look at swoon theory a bit later. Um, but the, the, um, the empty tomb is, um, is the big dilemma of history, isn't it? There's uh, various historians who could say that, they, that say that the empty tomb is... Um, one of the most historically attested facts of the first century. And if you looked on your Facebook feed this morning, as I did, I saw pictures of people queuing up to go to the garden tomb uh, this morning, 2,000 years later. Multiple sources in the New Testament uh, and even outside point to an empty tomb. Uh, But, John, what's most interesting about those accounts, the first accounts of the empty tomb, um, is something that wouldn't be a shock at all in Isleworth Court, um, but in the first century was an absolute scandal. Uh, John, the first witnesses to the resurrection weren't people who could have appeared in a court if you were a first century judge, um, because they were women and their testimony wasn't allowed. Why, Why did their testimony, do you think, make its way into the Gospels? Because it was so convincing. And, and if you read each gospel and hear the description of the women and their reaction, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the expression certainly used in the translations that I was reading was bewildered. <laughs> and, and Mary is catatonic in horror with what has happened and what she has seen. It's an, what I described as an ah moment. <laughs> she is so, well, she's so frightened, mm. so bewildered, which is an extraordinary expression. Mm. 
by what she's seen, that she cannot talk, she cannot describe it. Uh, Eventually it comes out and Mm. she tells the disciples Mm. in the the upper room where Mm. they're waiting. Um, But even then, in one of the other Gospels, she's described as being unbelievable because they cannot make sense of what she's saying. This is someone who's been shaken to the core. Um, another piece of evidence adding to the laminate. Mm. And she's gone in grief to a tomb to put oil on a body and uh, have the shock of her life to find that some of her dreams are coming true. But there, there have been alternative theories. We heard one in our, in our scripture reading today about the bribery of the guards. Others have said that, you know, maybe Jesus just didn't quite die on the cross and then he pushed his way out of the tomb, uh, managed to limp around for another 40 days before finally dying. You've maybe got, got to remember what preceded crucifixion. Mm. The, the body was flayed virtually, whipped, mm. beaten, flogged. Mm. The body was broken. Mm. It was hardly possible to take that cross up the hill. And uh, he, the, the evidence for death is so strong. Mm. And, and what is extraordinary after that is when Christ appears in the upper room, he suddenly appears in the middle of 11 disciples, a locked room, disciples terrified about the Jewish authorities coming to get them. Rather like a terrorist cell. Mm. Anyway, um, and he he ticks off the disciples for being um, of little faith and Mm. believing that he has died and left Mm. them. Um, But there he is, corporal, body-like. He shows his wounds, Mm. Um, later it's Thomas, but the mm. first the first time that he goes to that upper room, mm. what does he do? He ends up the evening eating boiled fish. I what know, a detail! And this is one of your strong arguments against hallucination, and you particularly like the um, the second encounter where he's eating fish. Richard knows that my favourite <laughs> hobby is fishing. I do occasionally provide the vicar with the odd fish. <laughs> it's, it's about a week later. The seven, seven of the disciples are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And Christ suddenly appears, supernaturally the implication is, but appears and speaks to them, telling them where to cast their net. They do, inevitably, they get a superb catch, haul it to shore, and then have a feast. Bread and white. Bread is being barbecued, and mm. the fish are barbecued. I think there's 143 fish or something extraordinary. It's a <laughs> massive detail. Yeah. Yeah, but um, that, that, that's it's about seven days afterwards. Again, one of the things that I mentioned it, Richard, mm. which I think is extraordinary, is that if you tease out dates from the four Gospels, you find that there is a consistency. Can I just run through them? I don't yeah, do. This will come on the screen. Timeline, I yeah, it's more to see, but we'll run through it. Empty tomb on the morning of the third day. Early that morning, the two Marys go to the tomb. Jesus identifies himself in a probably half corporeal state at that time. Um, Just after, it's probably morning, it looks as if it must be. Then you get the travelers on the road to Emmaus the same day, that's midday Sunday, then Peter in Jerusalem during Sunday, and then to the ten disciples in the upper room Sunday evening. It's, it's a small piece of evidence, but it's consistent. There's nothing inconsistent with the timing. 
By itself, useless evidence. As another layer to that laminate, valuable. Just, just a thought. No, I think it's, it's wonderful. So we've, we've looked at, was Jesus really dead? Was he buried? Um, was the tomb empty? Touched on these post-mortem appearances. There's much more you could tease into that, of course. But um, the, the final sort of four was uh, the change in the disciples. And Because uh, we have to remember the disciples' situation. John's described them as being like a terrorist cell waiting for the authorities to come and arrest them, to crucify them. Uh, the authorities would have no mercy. Their leader was dead. And the, the whole expectation of the Jewish era was that um, the Messiah wasn't going to die. He was going to conquer everyone. And suddenly he's been conquered by their enemies. He's been crucified. And they also had a strong Jewish belief um, that no one would rise from the dead until the final resurrection, the end of the world. So no one's supposed to rise from the dead. Even half the Jews didn't even believe in resurrection from the dead at all. And suddenly these guys are prepared to stake their life on it that this man Jesus has risen from the dead unexpectedly despite the shame of being killed. I have two, two New Testament scholars said these two things. Uh, Luke Johnson uh, from Emory University says that some sort of powerful transformative experiences required to generate the sort of movement the earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, who was Bishop of Durham not long ago, says that's why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. I, I mean, John... Just what, two what, centuries later, half, a quarter of the Roman Empire was Christian. Well, what happened in that room? Mm. Locked, Christ suddenly appearing mm. and giving power, breathing mm. on the disciples. Again, we, we're, we're dealing with ideas and concepts that I find difficult, very difficult, because they're supernatural. But did they happen? That, that's what you as the jury have to decide. <laughs> so um, we're going to hand over to the jury in a, in a moment um, what's, what's your decision going to be the empty tomb the death and uh, burial of Jesus the transformation in these disciples from a scared terrorist type cell to world changers uh, the historical evidence of Jesus' life and the accounts in the gospel really the decision is yours uh, but before we hand over to you for a final decision. And Bishop Graham Tomlin this, this week, John, just emailed me saying that um, for all that we've tried to do today, um, down through history, the most radical proofs of the resurrection aren't actually anything that we've talked about today, despite all um, your wonderful efforts. He said that in the 4th century, Athanasius, one of the great Christian heroes, uh, looked around at people around him and said, uh, his life's changed, her life's changed, his life's changed, her life's changed, his life's changed, her life's changed. Hey, many of you, your lives have changed. Uh, you ask me how I know he lives, says the old hymn. He lives within my heart. And um, in many ways, possibly the most convincing proof, I think, in, in 21st century West London, it is not necessarily historical evidence because we're, we're very bad at assessing up truth and facts. Um, but the, the reality of the people sitting next to us in the pews or, or our own story of what God's done in our lives. Uh, Judge John Dennis, um, thank you so much for being with us and thank all you. your work. This year.